And since it's been a while, you'll recall in Romans chapter 5, it begins in in, in verse 1, where Paul, ever since the very first verse, he's been laying the reasons for your assurance, which is rooted in this declaration. God is a reasonable God. He doesn't just zap you with feelings of assurance. He wants you to know, and He wants you to know by understanding. And so here are these, these, these reasons have been laid out for us that, that begin with this declaration that God has now made about you uh, if you're in Jesus Christ. He, he says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's how it starts And that was after the two and a half chapters of Paul showing us our guilt and our condemnation and then pointing to our only hope, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this gospel, God has revealed the way he will provide his own righteousness to mankind, and that's received by faith alone. And he keeps us from getting confused between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He said it's always been by faith. It's always been that way that God either would provide His own righteousness, or in our case, God has provided His own righteousness in in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the only difference now. The the Savior has come and accomplished the work. Abraham believed God about a future promise that was to come, and believing that God would provide His own righteousness in the future, he was justified. And we have the the fulfillment of that promise. The good news has come. we, We believe that God has provided that righteousness for us in in Jesus Christ, which is what Paul is eager to declare, eager to declare to the Romans, eager to declare beyond the Romans to to those in in Spain. Because until that news is heard and received, all men, all people remain under the consequences of their forefather, Adam, which brings us to verses 12 through 21 which is where we left off, this contrast, these ten verses that compare and contrast mankind's union with Adam and a believer's union with, with Jesus Christ. We said the theology of this passage is very straightforward. It's not hard to even pick up out of the passages, but there are some implications here that confront our sinful tendency to evaluate God rather than God evaluating us through, through His Word. I mean... Paul says, in Adam all die, and, but in Christ all live. And that's not hard to understand or grasp, but the implication that every person, even from conception, is judged in Adam is a truth that our sinful nature wants to, wants to reject. I mean, we want to evaluate God with some fairness principle, as if we have the ability to, to rise up and, and evaluate God. We're, we're confronted with, with many questions uh, from the Bible, that we have to let the Bible answer rather than human logic, which is woefully insufficient, not to mention corrupted by the, by the fall. Questions like, how can God judge everyone because of one person's sin? Or even other questions like, what, what about people who don't have the law or, or a clear command? And, and we work through all of those in, in Romans 12 through, through 17. And today, Paul's going to summarize this, this entire passage. He's going to Tie it up in a nice, neat little bow in verses 18 and 19 that Colin read for us. And, and he's doing this because he wants you to show you as a believer, a believer that you have an unshakable assurance. Your relationship to Adam has now changed, and that was replaced by a union with Jesus Christ because of the gospel. 
And he introduces this, this being, this union with Christ, all the way back in verse 10. Look at, look at Romans 5.10, because before he even goes into this Adam and Christ, he, he, he hints to what's coming in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by, or I think better, in His life. We'll be saved in His life. We were once in Adam, and we were once condemned in Adam. And having been justified, we are now saved be, being in Christ. We reign in life, in His life. Reign in life through Him. And that shift brought a completely new set of outcomes for us. I mean, instead of judgment and death we were, uh, that we were all under in Adam, we, we now have justification and life in, in, in Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the passage accompanied with the, with the similarities and the contrast between these two men that tower over all of, uh, of humanity. I mean, Romans 5, 12 through 21 looks at humanity as a whole and specifically how Adam's fall and his headship as the first man affected every person born after him and born in him. And in the panorama of history, from the Garden of Eden to, to heaven, Adam stands at the head of, uh, of mankind. He is the human representative. And his sinful nature was passed to us seminally, and his judgment was inherited by us federally. And he stands until this new figure comes in the likeness of Adam, yet without sin. And this new, this new man is Jesus Christ. And at God's appointed time, the last Adam came, and those who are now born again in Him have a new nature and a new destiny and a new set of results because of this new representative. We said if you want to say it simply, there are two men marked by two acts that bring about two different results, and, and we're going to hear Paul's summary about them today in, in these two verses. Now let me... Let me remind you how this whole passage fits together. It won't take long, but I think it's helpful. Uh, I'm, I'm running at 65 or 70 miles an hour in it, and you're still trying to get out of the Gospels. So look at verse 12. This is where it starts. Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. I mean, he begins this comparison here between Adam and Christ, and he said, sin entered through Adam, death entered through sin. Death came as a byproduct of sin, and death spread to all because all sin. That, that's, that's the first half of the comparison, one side of the coin. Let me tell you about Adam. So he does that in, in, in verse... In verse 12, just as, just as through one man. And here was the results of that one man, one man. And then he intends to turn the coin over and give us the other side, which is Christ. But he doesn't give us that comparison until our verse, all the way down in verse 18. So you have this gap between verses 12 and, and verse 18. Because when Paul started writing and he got to the end of verse 12 and he said, and death came to all men because all sinned, he thought, hmm. They might misunderstand what I mean by all, all sin, because I, I don't necessarily mean all sin individually. I, I mean all sin in Adam, and that might take some explanation. So that's what he does. Understanding that we're likely not to fully grasp the, the depth of his statement, he doesn't want us to be confused. 
So at the beginning of verse 13, he, he starts with this, this parenthetical statement, which is a fancy word for a rabbit trail. Preachers go on them all the time. Verse 13. What do, what do I mean all sinned in Adam and individually? Uh, uh, how is that possible? What's the explanation? Well, here it is. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, when the Ten Commandments came. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Adam had a, had a, had a command, a law, and he transgressed it. And so death reigned even over people that didn't have a law, a Ten Commandments, that, that, and they stepped over it. Who is a type of him to come? Adam is a type of, of him who was to come. So what proves the comprehensive reach of Adam's sin and Adam's judgment? Well, it's sin's undeniable presence, even before God gave a, the Mosaic Covenant. And that's proven because people died. That death's universal reign, apart from the law, was there. People everywhere were dying during this period, showing that they were condemned in Adam, even before they were condemned for their own sin. And this headship of Adam, this was because Adam was our, our head, the head of humanity. And that head of humanity foreshadowed another head that, that was coming which is what he means by this type at the end of verse 14. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And we know now he's talking about Jesus Christ. And, and now what was very unclear about verse 12 is very clear, and you would expect Paul to pick up and give us the other side of the coin. He talked about Adam, and now he, he should talk about Christ. But, but once again, he gets to the end of his statement in verse 14. Adam is a type of Christ, and, and he thinks, wow, I mean, further clarification is needed once again. Adam and Christ are surely similar. They both stand as head over a people, but, but they're not the same on every level. In, in fact, they're dissimilar in, seven, uh, in several ways. So verse 15, Paul then begins to clarify further and explain the differences between, between Adam and, and, and Christ. Another rabbit trail within a rabbit trail, which is why this thing seems hard to, to follow. What do I mean Adam is a type of Christ who, who was to come? Verses 15 through 17. Don't misunderstand me. There are similarities. There are also differences. How? Verse 15. Well, for one, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of grace by the one man Jesus Christ abound to many. I mean, it's like he's saying, I'm making a general comparison here, but don't press that too far. And then after explaining the differences between Adam and Christ, he finally returns to his original thought that he started in verse 12, and, and he turns the coin over. And in verse 18, he says, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so. Here's the other side. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to, to all men. And then we'll get to verses 20 and 21, Lord willing, next week, which is where Paul wants to make sure that he's not accused of dismissing the law. So he'll explain the purpose of the law to us next week. That's how the passage lays out with all of its sidetracks and rabbit trails. Paul is now ready to draw his, his summary, finally. And in this summary, he shows us, there are three actually, summaries about Christ's work as it's compared to Adam, and he gives us this to drive the nail of assurance e e even deeper. 
In the summary, he says there was one greater act, there was one better result, so Jesus is one superior substitute in verse 19. One greater act, one better result, one superior substitute. The first summary, let's look at what he adds here. This first summary of Christ's work is he accomplished it by one greater act in in verse 18. Look, if you would, at verse 18. He says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification of of life. So so he begins with, so then, or therefore, indicating that, that he's now picking up where he left off in verse 12. And the first thing that he focuses on, we already have the two individuals, Adam and Christ. The first thing that he draws our attention to is this one transgression, and this one act of righteousness. Verse 12 and verse 18 go together, and he takes the two verses and summarizes them. And he basically says the same thing. Notice verse 19 is just repetition. Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so uh, through the obedience of the one many will be made righteous. Notice the little word for there. Four, meaning that verse 19 is an explanation of verse, of verse 18. Now, if you've been paying attention at all since verse 12, you may, you may read those verses and wonder, like, well, what did you add here, Paul? How did you advance the, the ball? Because he repeats himself again. I mean, he's been repeating himself over and over and over since verse 12, almost to the point where you get this kind of feeling like, you know, get on with it, Paul. I mean, I know Romans 6 is coming, and it's all about sin and, and, and how we, we're no longer slaves to it. Let, let's get there. So why do you keep repeating yourself? I mean, even after six verses, he's still contrasting these two men that stand over humanity. And, and once again, he holds out Adam's trespass and Christ's act of righteousness and Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience and... Christ's justification and versus Adam's condemnation. And the only way to understand this repetition is to remind yourself of the reason that Paul is writing this to begin with, which is to show you how complete your justification actually is in order to buttress or to to build up the foundation of, of your security, of your assurance. I mean, think about it. He could have said all of this in one or two verses, not take ten. I mean, he could have said you were once in Adam and now you're in Christ. And so you're secure. But he delves into the details about our condition in Adam before, how, how his sin brought death into the world and how death spread to all of us and, and how it was his disobedience that God first judged and and that, then he makes sure that we understand how that's, that's even possible whenever there wasn't a law and, and how Adam is the, is the represent, representative of mankind. In the same way, Christ is to us now. And then he details our union with Christ and how it took place and all the results. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says Paul will keep saying this even over and over and over till he gets all the way to the end of chapter 8 and reaches that magnificent climax that you love and I love and, and we know so well in Romans eight thirty eight, For I am convinced, I'm persuaded, 
And I want you to be convinced and persuaded, which is why all this repetition. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Okay, Paul, we get the point. Over and over, detail after detail. Nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why all the repetition? Because this is key to our assurance. What he keeps repeating about your union with Adam and your union with Christ is key for you to lay hold of genuine security. I mean, if you want to get a hold of how secure you really are, you must look deeply into this union. You must see it in detail. You must understand how it has taken place. I mean, that's the rebar of your faith because assurance doesn't come from your feelings. God doesn't just zap you with peaceful feelings. It comes from what you know. And so sometimes you come to these passages and you say, why such detail? Why so difficult? Why so hard? Because God wants to put rebar in, in, in your knowing. And that's the only thing that will do it, is, is, this, is this detail and this depth. And feelings are a byproduct of, of what I understand or believe. So, so if I want to feel peace, for instance, the, the, peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding, then I have to understand I am at peace with God. And what Paul works out here and underlines in detail in these verses is that God deals with humanity federally um, as well as individually. But he deals with humanity in, with representatives. Here's Adam and here's Christ. And you want to understand security, you need to understand that God deals with humanity. I deal with humanity in looking at Adam and in looking at Jesus Christ. I'm sure you already get the individual part. It's not that that's not important. But what puts the Loctite on, on the lug nut of your security is this, this corporate approach. I mean, you know that God must deal. You must deal with God yourself. You can't just go to God in your own sin. You know your, your mother can't save you, your grandmother or anybody else. But if you want to enjoy assurance of your salvation, you must see that God deals with mankind corporately, is what Paul's saying here. That's where the key to security is found. It, it's not by looking at yourself. Now think about this. Or your own record. Security is found by, uh, by, by, by looking at your old head Adam and your new head Jesus Christ because He is now the one who stands before God on, on your behalf. He represents you before the Father. You don't represent yourself before God anymore. You didn't represent yourself before God prior to Christ. Adam represented you. You just added on to the condemnation because you sinned in the likeness of Adam. But God condemned mankind because of Adam's transgression. And now Jesus Christ represents you before the Father. And you might confirm that you are Jesus Christ by your acts, your own actions, but you stand or fall if Christ stands or falls. And Christ stands, does He not? And therefore you have security. Because it's His one act of righteousness that secures us before God. Look at verse 18 again. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, 
through one act of righteousness, not many acts of your righteousness, but one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So Paul starts with Adam standing before God and the fact that he transgressed. Notice this says nothing about your sin whatsoever. It says nothing about your personal sin. This is all about Adam and it's all about Christ. Adam stood before God as a representative of mankind, as the first man. And he committed one transgression as a representative. You're not judged for all of Adam's other sins that he did after that first transgression. Mankind is judged because our representative failed. That one transgression then cast the die from that point forward. And everybody associated with Adam was affected by that act. We were condemned, in fact. And God who created man has the right to deal with us in his creation however he wants. And he decided to deal with us corporately. He decided to set up a representative and then a test. But then it says, even so, on the flip side of the coin, Christ also stood before God as a representative. And he performed one act of righteousness as well. And it's these two acts that that God looks at. And to grasp that is to gain a hold on security. I mean, think of it this way. A lot of times you lack security or you begin to doubt because you look away from Christ and you begin to look at your own sins and your own record. And and you see that you've committed many sins. And you have committed sins, some sins that you don't even know about. So sins you've committed against people and God, you don't even realize you've, you've done it. I don't know if you've had that experience before, but somebody comes up to you a month later or a year later or whatever and says, you know, I need to confess something to you. You offended me greatly. And I know you didn't know about this, but I'm, I've, I've, I've had a hard time overcoming it, and, and now I need to ask your forgiveness because I, I got a root of bitterness that was there. And you're going, I didn't even know I did that. <laughs> Forgive me. I mean, if you would have come to me earlier, I, I would have confessed it right, right then. You didn't even know. And that's with human beings. You realize how many times you sin against God, and you don't even realize that you sin against God, and you offend the creator of the universe? And we don't even know that we've, we've committed these these sins. So what if God says, I will forgive your sins. I will give you assurance if you confess all of your sins before me. Would there be any assurance in that? Go into the the guy in the little booth and tell him all of your sins and he'll say something to you and you'll you'll walk away and you will have your conscience cleansed. Would that actually bring you assurance? No, it wouldn't. You would be, if you were sincere, you'd be exactly like Martin Luther. You'd spend eight to ten hours in the confessional. You'd get out of there and you'd go, oh, I forgot a, a sin. I've got to go back in and confess that sin. It wouldn't bring you any, any assurance because you couldn't confess all of them, much less the ones that you don't even know about. And you've committed sin since you've trusted Christ. You see, when you start focusing on yourself and your record, that's whenever your knees get weak and doubt creeps in. I mean, did I confess enough? Did I confess rightly? Did I repent well? Did did I get all of them? But God says your security is not based on that whatsoever. 
God says there's one act of righteousness that He looks at for your security, which is why 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I'd have you that, you that you not sin, but if you do sin, your security is in Jesus Christ the, the righteous. You have an advocate with the Father. You have a representative here in my very presence. I look to Him. I don't look to you. And He's fully propitiated me to you. And that's the righteous act of Christ. And that act never changes and never wavers. So neither does your security. And you hear that and you understand that. And you say, now, now there's, a, there's a foundation I, I can put my security on. Not how well I'm doing, but on what Christ did. In fact, Paul's primary teaching in these two verses is that Adam's one transgression was viewed by God as disobedience and Christ's one act of righteousness was obedience. And you can see verse 19. Remember, this is an explanation. For as through the one man's disobedience called it a transgression in verse 18. He says it's disobedience. Here's the conclusion about that transgression. The many were made sinners, even so through the obedience, which he called one act of righteousness, of the one, many will be made righteous. So when God placed a command before Adam to eat from any tree, you can eat from any tree, you can have the full blessings of everything that I've created, but my command is you may not eat from this one tree. There's the command. And Adam transgressed that one command. That was disobedience. But when Jesus Christ came into the world, God placed before him also a path of righteousness and he obeyed. He fulfilled God's command. And that's the underlying theme that reoccurs in the life of Christ. When you read the Gospels, we've been in the Gospels a lot uh, at, the, at the end of the, of the last year. And, and yes, it's about the birth of Jesus. He's born in Bethlehem and he dies and, and he, he rises from the dead. But the underlying theme behind that is, is he has come to do the will of the Father. And he does the will of the Father. I mean, that's in the background in every scene. I mean, do you remember from the very beginning of his ministry in his baptism? Jesus steps forward out of, out of obscurity. And he's baptized by John, and John was preaching a baptism of, re, of repentance. And John says, you don't need to repent or confess your sins. What are you doing here? You need to baptize me. Look at Matthew 3. It says, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for it is in this way, uh, for in this way it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness, the one righteous act. And then he permitted him. I mean, Jesus basically says, I know, John. I know I'm not a sinner. I, I know I don't need to repent repent or, or confess, but I must take a sinner's place and obey the Father, which starts by agreeing with your message that confessing and sins and repenting is right because the justice of the law has to be upheld. And that's what Jesus means by fulfilling all righteousness. He starts walking that path. 
at the baptism. And, and from then on, that, that, that's what he's doing, fulfilling all righteousness. And he's carrying out the will of the Father. I mean, there are too many passages to even, even list a fraction of them that have this idea. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. What did Adam seek? God's will? No. John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. That's exactly what he prayed even in the last hour before he went to the cross. And Matthew 26, 39, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went a little further uh, beyond them and, and fell on his face and prayed, Father, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but, but as you will, your will be done. Have you ever done the will of God? No. Maybe fractionally. And what was his focus on the cross? John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scriptures, He said, I am thirsty. And His final declaration, therefore, when Jesus received the sour wine, He said, it is accomplished, finished. He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. He completed His one act of righteousness and then He declared, it's complete. What, what was complete? Christ's lifelong obedience and His specific obedience on the, on the cross. I mean, you even remember Jesus saying this after, after His birth and then you don't really see anything until this kind of odd scene when He's 12 years old and He's left in the temple. and they, Where have you been? Remember what He says? I have to do my Father's will. I'm about my Father's will. Christ's lifelong obedience, he was obedient lifelong, and then that culminated in the cross. He, he lived the life that Adam should have and the one you needed him to live. And he died as a climax of, of his life of obedience. And I mean, his obedient life led him to the cross. Theologians call this the active obedience and the passive obedience of, of Jesus. He obeyed the law perfectly. That's the active part. And and then he submitted to the law's righteous demands of judgment for transgressions. That's the passive part. And you hear that and you, you sometimes look at your own heart and you find no security there, but, but you find all reason, every reason to have security in Jesus Christ. God was not pleased with Adam. And God did not accept Abraham or Moses or Enoch or Noah or, or anyone else. And God's not satisfied with you either or me. But He was and is with His Son. And you're now in Him, is Paul's point. So you have received the results of His work being, being in Him. What are those results of Christ's work? What did God give Him? because of this one act of righteousness that brings you to the other part of verse 18. It brings about a better result, resulting in justification leading to life. Look at verse 18 again. He says, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. 
Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to, to all men. So he starts, we already know the, the two figures, Adam and Christ. He starts with, with Adam's failure as a representative, Christ's success as a representative, and now he's talking about the results associated with those two figures. He points out their results. That's the focus here. And so he says, through one transgression, there resulted in condemnation. He'll explain that further in verse 19. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification. I mean, what did Adam, what Adam did led to certain results for his people. And what Christ has done leads to certain results as, as well. And Paul defines the results of Christ's work. It's, it's justification of life. This is actually a, a result clause in the original. Justification is the result of Christ's obedience as our representative. And life is a consequence of that justification. Justification leads to life. That's how you put it together. Future life in heaven and life you now have in the Son. Tom Schreiner said the work of Christ doesn't merely return human beings to the state of Adam prior to sin as as we even talked about the last time when we were together. But those in Christ now enjoy the righteousness of another. This is the gospel. A righteousness of another. This is security. The righteousness of another. Not, not, not your righteousness or how well you arrange it all together. The righteousness of another has, has been granted to you. And if you lay hold of that, that, that is where you will find Security. And here we're brought face to face once again, face to face once again with this great word that Paul started with, having been justified. And you know by now that this justification is a judicial term. It, it means to be, to, to be declared something. In this case, to be declared just or righteous before God. Which means that there was a moment when we were in one state before God, in the state of condemnation under Adam, and then in a moment of decision before the great bar of justice, the judge that sits on the throne made a ruling, and his ruling was now you're declared righteous. You were declared condemned, and now you're declared righteous. And again, don't miss the basis of this declaration because that supports Paul's song of security. The gavel of God does not come down based on your record or Adam's record, but Christ's. And when God judged him, Christ, based upon his faithful obedience, the result is justification for you. And notice the contrast, Adam's condemnation, Christ's justification. I mean, even the words, condemnation, condemnation justification, point to this, this moment of, of declaration. And also notice that he leaves details out about Adam. I mean, notice he leaves out uh, details about Adam's result. He puts emphasis on the, on the result of Christ's justification. The condemnation of Adam was death. That's what should say condemnation leading to death, but he leaves the death part out. That's what we learned in verse 12. But he puts the life part in when it comes to Christ and reminds us what awaits us at the end in 
being in Christ, because his point is he wants you to have security. Life is a consequence of enjoying righteousness that is not your own. Heaven is the consequence of enjoying righteousness that is not your own. So stop trying to work your way there or climb your way there. You'll never get there. Heaven is a, is a byproduct of a declaration. And the declaration is you're righteous based upon someone else's record, not your own. And that's because we have a superior substitute, and this is how he ends. Look at verse 19. He says, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Paul simply restates, and he explains what he just got done saying in verse 18. Through the disobedience of Adam, people were made sinners, and through the obedience of Christ, many shall be made righteous. That's not new. That information is not new. You could say, Paul, you've already told me that. What is new is this word made. He says we were made sinners, and we were made righteous. What does that mean? I want you to notice that he doesn't say we were made sinful as an adjective. He's not saying that we were given a sin nature in Adam, although that's true, we were. Well, that's, that's not his point here. He doesn't say we were made sinful and therefore we sin like Adam sinned. He says we were made sinners, noun, pointing to substitution, the substitutionary aspect of this. The representative brings about a declaration. And this word made, when it's used elsewhere, it means to appoint or to be designated. We were appointed as sinners. We were designated as sinners before God. And the point he's making here by using this word, once again, is all about assurance. As Adam once stood as our single representative, the head of humanity, and he acted on all human, uh, human beings' behalf, and when he failed, then mankind gained the status of guilty, uh, of a sinner. We were made sinners before God. Man was appointed or made sinners by Adam's disobedience. He was like our representative. There's a story in the Old Testament that may help you understand this, this concept. It's, it's one that you learned in Bible school. It's the story of David and Goliath. Remember that story? I know you do. In the Elah Valley. 1 Samuel 17. You remember Israel is arrayed on one side and Saul is the leader there and the Philistines are arrayed on the other side of the valley and, and Goliath comes out in the middle of the field and he taunts the armies of the living God, which is what gets David's dander up. But listen to what Goliath asks for and what he says. 1 Samuel 17, 8 and 9. This is Goliath speaking. Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be made your servants. We will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become or be made our servants to, to serve us. I mean, th th this... 
this wasn't just a, a battle between the, between the Philistines as a people and the Israelites as a people. This wasn't even a battle between men. This was a battle between gods. And, and, and he is asking for a representative. I mean, Goliath is saying, send a substitute to stand for, 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 for your people to fight. And the results will then be shared by all. And if your representative wins, then we'll be made your slaves. But if our representative wins, then, then we will be made and you will be made our slaves. Paul says in the same way, Adam stood as our representative and he faced temptation and he failed. And so all mankind shared his outcome. And the outcome was we became sinners before God. Lloyd-Jones says you might think of it this way. If one member of our country should be guilty of an offense in another country, that country may well declare war against the U.S. And though you and I have, have not committed the offense ourselves, we suffer the consequences, don't we? The other country declares war, and we therefore legally, in international law, have been constituted enemies of that, of that country. Though we have done nothing at all in our own persons. It's a judicial procedure. And according to the Apostle Paul, that's what happened to us. Our position before God judicially has become that, that of sinners. We became sinners, not by a personal act on our part, but entirely and solely by that one disobedience of the first Adam. Now that's the bad news. But the bad news helps you make sense of the good news. In verse 19 again, gives us the contrast, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The contrast is, in the same way, there will be many made or judicially appointed or designated righteous before God as well. Just as Adam stood as our representative, like Saul refused, when he refused to go out and fight and he failed, Christ stepped forward as our substitute, and He was victorious. And anyone in Him has been appointed, declared, designated as righteous by God. Are you, are you ready for this? Regardless of their own personal record. And you should rejoice in that, because your personal record won't get you into heaven, will it? regardless of your sin, no matter how much sin you've committed, no matter how little righteousness you personally possess, because you were not the one who went to the battlefield. You were not the one who faced the act of obedience. It was Christ. And He was successful. And so your security has absolutely nothing to do with you whatsoever. The only record that God looks at is Christ's, is what Paul is saying. And his record says obedient and righteous and perfectly fulfilled God's will. And so God's declaration about him is just. And therefore, God's declaration about you when you put your faith in Him, and then you are placed in union with Him, is the same, just and righteous. And now He no longer sees you as a sinner or an Adam. He now sees you as a son 
in Christ. You have to be careful what you call yourself. You're no longer um, a sinner by name. And, and I understand that you sin personally. And we talk about how we're sinful and how we're sinners. And that's true. The Bible talks about that as well. But you're not a sinner before God anymore. You're a saint, which is why the Bible calls you that, why you read that, why Paul calls the Corinthians saints, and you go, huh? I've read the book of Corinthians. They don't look like saints to me. And they're not in themselves. But they are in Jesus Christ. You're no longer sinners, you're saints, and you're sons. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Because if you, if you know that, if you understand what I, what I just preached to you this morning, what Paul just laid out, and you actually believe that, then that's where you're going to find security. If you do, you'll eventually feel that. And when you know that and believe that and feel that, then you'll have the work of assurance. The key to assurance and security is to look away from yourself and look away from your sin, look away from your confessing and your repenting for security, and look to the record of the one who stands before God as your representative. And when you do, you'll find security. Get you by your heads. Some of you are here this morning and you don't have security because you've, you've never laid hold of Christ to begin with. And if that's true, you know that. You're still in Adam. And that is a horrific place to be. And what I'm here to tell you is just an echo of what Paul told the Romans and what God has been saying since the beginning. You haven't done enough. You never will do enough. You must look away from yourself to the provision that He's made. You must repent of your own rebellion, your own self-sufficiency. You must turn and place your faith in God's provision where He provides His own righteousness to you through His Son. And then, and only then, can you be saved and find this secure hope. And I pray you'll do that today. Father, I do pray that anyone outside of Christ, still in Adam, will have heard the gospel today and will respond in faith believing. But also pray for Christians this morning, those who are no longer in Adam, those who are in Christ. It's, it's, it, it's done. You've already declared them righteous. But they wrestle and struggle, have moments of doubt and weakness. And Father, I pray that you'll help them see today it's because they look away from the only place they can find security, which is Jesus. And they begin to, to look at their feet and the dust around it and the clutter in their lives. And I pray that you would elevate their, their eyes to Jesus once again and you'd give them that security and assurance. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.